Hello, and uh, welcome to What Divines Us. I'm Rabbi Abram Goodstein. And I'm Reverend Matthew Schultz. So, Matt, guess what? Um, you bought me a brand new car. <laughs> oh, man, I'm actually having some car issues. Oh, I'll tell, that's a lesson for a later thing. Uh, but I did not buy you a brand new car. No, right. we have, you and I, we have been co- podcasters for a year now. Woo! That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Um, we've also received over a thousand downloads at this point. Oh, nifty. Yeah. All right. I'm not going to do the math, but that's like 10 million people per week, right? (laughs) Us clergy, we're not famous for our math skills. That's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's wonderful. So to everyone who has listened and is listening now, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. And, uh, I won't speak for Rabbi Abram, but I find this to be lots and lots of fun. Oh, yeah. Please don't speak for me about how, how fun this is. But you know what? So, so one thing I've noticed, Matt, about being a podcaster is that there's data that you can access through your podcast, right? You're, yeah. uh, people, you, I, you can, like, figure out where people are. And I learned that, like, you know, of course, most of the downloads are in Alaska. No surprise there, right? <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. But, like, there are sometimes there are pockets that I'm so curious about. Like, for example, Pennsylvania had... Uh, a lot of downloads recently, like um, and and so I'm super curious about that. How how specific does it get? Can you get to like a certain town in Pennsylvania or just state? No, no, all I get to state. Yeah, yeah. Well, my um, I went to college in Pennsylvania, so it could be some of my old Ooh, buddies. Your old buds. Back in the day. Yeah, yeah. So if you're in awesome. Pennsylvania listening to this podcast, tell us tell us how you figured us out or how you figured out how we got there. Um, also, yeah. I learned that like. Our, um, our third podcast uh, on Ritual, which traditionally hasn't been doing so well in terms of numbers, got like eight downloads one day, just in one day, that um, randomly, like maybe like a couple weeks ago. And I'm so curious there, like if you downloaded the Ritual podcast randomly eight days ago, tell us, tell us, you know, we'd love to learn why or how people are downloading our, our content. Yeah. Was that in December? Maybe people found that topic to touch on holidays and Christmas time and Hanukkah time? Yeah, I don't actually, I don't have to look at it again. I'm not exactly sure what it was, but it was surprised me to have just like one podcast randomly. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Anyway, so super exciting. I feel like we've learned a few things about podcasting over the, over the last year. uh, And hopefully we have more years to come with podcasting, right? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm, I'm all for it, man. Let's keep going. Okay, great. Let's sally forth. Um, all right, so let's chat a little bit about our topics today. Uh, well, so- you know, I'll mention also that we're on a new format today. We're just being a little bit cautious about the Omicron variant, so we're doing this via a an online interface. So we're not in the same room. I think it's the first time we've done this that way, right? Yeah, and, and you may not even notice who's ever listening right now. Like, uh, yeah. I hope that's the case. But as it started, there was a cool countdown, and the numbers flashed on the screen. It went five, some four, three, two, one. Yeah, some more official. And, and it felt like countdown to liftoff for a rocket ship. Ah, oh, oh, segue, segue. Friend, how do you like that? Yeah. So religion in space, right? That's a that's a fun that's a fun topic. Um, do you, Matt? Do you want to explain why like we're really thinking about religion in space right now? Well, first of all, it sounds like the worst TV show on the Sci-Fi <laughs> Network. <laughs> religion in space, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I just uh, happened to bump across the headlines. Many of you may have seen it as well. If you're listening, listening from far afield in Pennsylvania, you might have seen the headlines that said uh, NASA had worked with theologians to think about what. The, the implications would be for Earth's spiritual life, the people of Earth, uh, you know, our religions, if we were to discover life on other planets. 
And I found that to be fascinating. And I also got jealous because I wanted to be on that committee that was talking about these things. And they even have a name for the discipline. It's called astrotheology. And I love that. boy, do Astro- I want a business. That is, sounds so cool. Astrotheology. Doesn't it? Oh, that's man. just the best. And it used to be called exotheology, but I think they switched it because that implies anything not here. But the whole intent is to to view ourselves as part of the broader cosmos. And how does, you know, how does that impact us? Not rather than making it a self other structure from the beginning, they're hoping to present it as some type of pan universal continuity of life. Yeah. Yeah. And so when I was reading this article, it was, I guess the NASA sort of commissioned the center for theological inquiry at Princeton university to help them out with that. And so through, through this program, they got 23 theologians um, mm-hmm. to participate in this project. Now, I guess my question, Matt, is like, what's the difference between like a theologian and a clergy, you know, like who did, who, like who were these people um, that helped NASA out? Yeah. Well, you can be both. You can be, be you can have degrees in theology and spend your whole day doing a theologian stuff and also be a pastor if I were to create a cartoon sketch of the two, I would say that pastors are more likely to be involved in relationships with people and how does the spiritual life impact your day-to-day living in your family and your home and your work. So it's, it's applied sciences as opposed to theoretical sciences. So the theologians might spend weeks and weeks at a time holed up in the library wearing the same brown suit with the leather patches on their elbows. Oh, the patches? And oh, so, so necessary. Glasses up on top of their head, walking around saying, where are my glasses? And, you yeah. know, carrying around stacks of books. And they have these wonderful, amazing, deep thoughts but they're not necessarily geared toward helping the rest of us understand how do we apply these thoughts to reality. Now, please understand, um, I have some friends who are theologians, and they would say, wait a minute. In Pennsylvania, maybe, perhaps? <laughs> in Princeton, New Jersey, actually, where I went to seminary, and it was adjacent to the, the CTI. And, you know, they are some brilliant, brilliant people there. It's, it's really great to get a chance to, to chat with them once in a while. And and I think it's fair to say, oh, that's the wrong way to phrase it. I think it's sometimes a very good thing that they are not tied to the goal of making this apply to everyday life. They're seeking thought and they're th- seeking wisdom and seeking depth of understanding and sometimes new stuff. It's exploration for exploration's sake in a lot of ways. And then it's up to people like me who are on the practical applied side of it to say, well, here's how this is going to function in real life. Interesting. And so, you know, so uh, in terms of like sort of like my in my area of Judaism, Mm -hmm. you know, rabbis have sort of this idea of being like a scholar, like a rabbi is a scholar. And it's sort of always been the case in traditional Judaism. I feel like there hasn't really been a split between sort of like rabbi, a kind of rabbi that is a thinker. And a kind of rabbi that is sort of on the ground, like working with people, yeah. you know. Um, but I, I still think that split has happened, Matt. I, uh-huh. I just there's just no name name yeah, for yeah. it, right? So like, and of course, there should always be a foot in each. Like, and Presbyterian pastors in particular tend toward that bookworm side. Yeah, right? yeah. There are other denominations. I won't name them because I don't want to get into a fist fight, you know. But there are other denominations where the pastors never pick up a book. And so that's frustrating to me. And so there should be, you know, there's a spectrum there of how much of each ingredient you you throw into your stew pot. 
But I do, I, I personally think that, like, I, um, first of all, like, most of my teachers, when I went to rabbinical school, you know, they were the kind of, they would be essentially like a theologian, right? They're rabbi, we call them yeah. rabbi doctors. They've got, they're both, they have rab, they both went through rabbinical school and got, and got ordained as rabbis, and then they also have their PhDs um, on top yeah. of that. So they're really accomplished people. Oh, my goodness. Super smart. Mm-hmm. And they think about Judaism all day long. But they're not mm-hmm. necessarily, they're not necessarily what you, what you would call a pulpit rabbi, which is what, which is exactly what I am. I'm a pulpit rabbi. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm congregation Because that's a whole, that's a unique set of skills to use the old phrase, right? I mean, to, to be yeah. a pulpit rabbi, you need to have a certain level of ability to navigate with emotional intelligence. Yeah, yeah. So, so I would say that my my Torah is not as strong as their Torah. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. But I'd also say that you're right. That like being a a, pulp, a pulpit or congregational rabbi requires some skill sets that you don't necessarily acquire in academia. Uh, and and I, I love. I, I feel like more, I, I would call myself more like a professional rabbi compared to like an academic rabbi. Right. That's sort of yeah. how I think of myself as. I'm uh, and um, I'm more on the ground. I'm more into things like advocacy and stuff like that. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, but that's it is, it is interesting because, like in our in our profession, we don't really have a term for specifically for rabbis that are, you know, theologians, if you will, and rabbis that are uh, congregational. But you know, in seminary, most of us were there for the MDiv. That stands for Masters of Divinity. You could tell by the second year probably which of us were on the track toward pastoral ministry and which of us were on the track for the PhD. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. man. It's, we just kind of we stayed friends and all, but it was like, all right, you're going to take some different <laughs> I'm types glad of you class. Friends, yeah, nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, back to religion and space. It's so sad oh, yeah. that NASA didn't talk to you and me, Matt, about how we feel about this. You know, do they not know how many movies I've watched about <laughs> contacting aliens? <laughs> did, did no one, I know, right? They must have no idea. How do we tell them yeah. that they need to talk to us about about religion and space? We have lots of thoughts on this. That's right. And one of the first things that I've I've seen that I appreciate in those articles is that they say this is not about, you know, some biped walking off of a ship and saying, we come in peace. It's probably more likely about discovering fungus on an asteroid out past Mars, you know. Right. Um, and then we'll say, well, that's not what we would call intelligent or sentient life, but it's but it's life. It's a fungus that's reproducing or it's some type of bacteria or virus that's out there like the Andromeda strain. And it's like, all right, there's something alive. So, so what does that mean for us as humans? And, you know, we'll kind of ease into it. I would think eventually we'll contact a civilization, but it's more likely first it'll just be mold. (laughs) (laughs) Space mold. Mm. I just like, you know, for me, like it makes me wonder like how big does a religion encompass our worldview? Right. You know, we we we're very like human centric, if you will, when it comes to the universe. Right. Makes Mm -hmm. a lot of sense. But once we once it begins to occur to us that there's there's more things out there than we realized, you know, what does that do to our sort of religious experience? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And think about how much the, the the Roman church pushed back on Galileo and Copernicus, right? When it's like, oh, wait, we're not the center of the solar system? How dare you, sir? Yeah, Um, in fact, fact, the church used the story of Joshua as proof that uh, when Joshua stopped the sun from going across, you know, as proof that that that, uh, everything everything evolves around the earth, which I found so fascinating. Uh, But yeah, Yeah. but yeah, and you you know, my thought is this, like, there is a part, there is a moment in the Torah, I think it's in Exodus, where like, God's like, hey, Y'all, um, I know you're traveling around and you're in the Sinai, but 
those Edomites, don't go over there. Those are also my people. Right. And it's such, a, it's such an interesting line because it's just like it's like they're my people, too. So don't bother. Yeah. them. And I wonder if that's that, that can be sort of like a takeaway of like finding, say, like intelligent life in, in space. It's like saying, like, you know, God, you know, God's like, you know, I had this other project over here. You had no idea about it. I had no reason to tell you about it. And and but they're but they're doing their own thing. Uh, and they're right. also my people. It's like I feel like it's like one of many examples you can you can sort of use to help you understand religion and in space. <laughs> right. And what would it have done to the minds of the people in the time of Joshua if if there had been some revelation? Oh, by the way, what you're on right now is called a planet, right? They would have to first learn that. And then, oh, by the way, there are literally like hundreds of billions or maybe trillions of them in multiple galaxies. Oh, wait, first of all, here's what a galaxy is. You know, it's so far afield. Uh, time traveling back to them and t- trying to explain to them the way the world works is going to be exhausting, Matt. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like, but yeah. <laughs> so Although I saw a really funny, uh, it might have been Farsight or something similar where human astronauts land on another planet and the aliens uh, show up and they've got a picture of Jesus hanging uh-huh. up there on their house. And the aliens, the humans are like, oh, you know about Jesus of Nazareth? And they're like, yeah, sure. He showed up and preached about truth and love and kindness. And so we threw a party for him and treated him great. And he left. He comes back every few years. Why? What did you do to him? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yikes. Yikes. <laughs> Yeah, it's such a yeah, such an interesting, it's such an interesting thing. Like, like what 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 capacity does our religion have to handle sort of information? Like, there's life out there in space, and yeah. first you know, after this, after the whole sorry space mold, what comes next? I, it's gonna be fascinating because I hopefully whatever these twenty three theologians thought up, it gets published at one point. I, I would love to read what they're what. Are they gonna make some type of action plan? Like like if A happens, then do B, right? So if if it is space mold, here's how we tell that news to the public. Or if it's actual intelligent life conversing with us, here's how we tell the public that. Because that would be such a different response. You know, those are really different deals. And like, you know, it makes me wonder like if intelligent life is out there and they kind of they, they gaze at us, you know, you know, and they real like, can we even like have a like, you know, I think like in the movie Contact, right? The yep. language is math. You use math. You use mm-hmm. math to speak to aliens, but how do you yeah. convey religion? Like, how do you convey that we are a people of faith, a people of belief, um, and yeah. it isn't always logical or rational, and it doesn't have to be? Like, would it, would an would an intelligent life outside of our planet get that? Would they understand that? Well, it's hard enough to talk about religion amongst different human cultures. Yeah, that, that oh would gosh. just have to extrapolate outward to something so very different. But because we don't even know if. You know, if emotions would track the same, let alone, uh, you know, deeper things. So, yeah, it, it's it's an amazing thought to have. And I think it's going to be a lot like other conversations within the world of interfaith conversations where we have to begin from a position of acknowledgement of our own finite understanding and acknowledgement that we're not always correct. And so I would have to, let's imagine I met the alien, I would have to say, well, yes, I do believe in this school of thought of Christianity, but I have to also accept the fact that I might be wrong about any given part of it. And so when the alien shows up and says all this other stuff that they believe, I just have to treat that with some internal humbleness. 
I wonder um, how, like, if I were to meet like Azalea and you're talking about uh, Matt, I wonder how I would define religion to them. You know, because the PC wants to say like, you know, it's really about about us being better, like us hum- humans trying to trying to trying to do good work, trying to be good as like a com- as like a big component. Like, I don't even remember maybe, like bring God in at first. It'd be more like it's just it's you know it's good works. Yeah. Which, of course, so many people would already disagree with you that that's what it's about. <laughs> I'm already I'm in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of my professors once described all world religions as the proposition that the universe in its current state is somehow not quite right. And we're trying to work toward having it be right. And some say that that is a divine entity working downward toward us to make it right. Others uh-huh. say it's humans working upward toward the perfection or the divine to be right, whatever it is, it begins with this acknowledgement that, boy, there's something screwy <laughs> with the universe. Something messed up here. Yeah. yeah. So, so, you know, one thing that's also fascinating too, especially if, if like intelligent life, is, discovery intelligent life is so far away, which I imagine it is. Like, I don't think we're ever going to figure it out in our lifetime. But, um, but like, you know, this idea of like sort of like monotheism, right? The thing that Jews are sort of famous for, um, mm-hmm. It evolved over time, right? The, the, the monotheism that us modern Jews believe in is not yeah. the same monotheism the Israelites believed in, right? We we right, evolved right. it. We evolved. It took a process. It took a while for us it to get It started off with saying, like, we have one God, and it's better than all the rest of your gods out right. there. Right, exactly. As opposed to who all of them are. And our, and our Torah Although, mentions numerous other kinds of gods. Um, yeah. The, our Torah even says that Pharaoh was a kind of god. Um, yeah, and so we go, we go, we go from there. We move to this idea like nothing else exists but our God, right? We don't even acknowledge other right. gods as being gods as sort of like our 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 evolution of monotheism, if you will. So like I can see that being like helpful in thinking about um, uh, understanding intelligent life through religion, the lens of religion, right? That like you know um, it'll evolve, right? There's an evolution process yeah. there. Now, this is where we must absolutely mention the TV show Battlestar Galactica. Oh, Have you watched it? The Cylons. Dang. They, they were monotheists. And the humans were polytheists. Remember? That yeah. was one of the yeah. big push. They, had, they were deeply – they had a lot of faith, those Cylons. Yeah. That was something. That was something. That was pretty cool. Yeah. I really like that show. I'm glad we brought that, that show up. That's the first space theology right there. So we got to bring it back to the roots. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder if the CTI thought about Battlestar Galactica. We have that to offer them if they ever if they ever want to talk to us about this kind of stuff. Well, I don't have much to add on this other than if anyone from NASA is listening, you know how to find us. <laughs> Do they know? Hopefully they'll have to find our moms, right? They're the only ones with our email addresses. <laughs> Just Google us. There aren't that many people in Alaska. Yeah, we're cool. NASA, we're cool. Yeah, yeah, come find us. <laughs> All right, so we're going to move on now. Is that, is that what you're saying, Matt? Yeah, um, and trying to figure out how to make the tonal shift from yeah, the Yeah, we do have it. So as, so as you and I are talking, um, it is, today is January 27th, which is Holocaust Memorial Day, um, where this is the day where we uh, sort of observe the Holocaust. And uh, essentially, it's this day because it's the day it's actually, this is the day that you win, that you win kind of to decide on this one. And it's when... Um, okay. Yeah, it's when Auschwitz was liberated. So this is sort of like that's oh, what okay. we're demarcating on January 27th. There's also another right. one called Yom HaShoah, and that's sort of the Holocaust Memorial in Israel. Uh, and that's uh, that's usually around in, in April. 
And that can be and is that the one where I've seen videos online where there's a moment of silence observed in throughout yeah, the Yeah, it's really the, it's really interesting. There's like a horn that goes off. I believe yeah. it's two minutes, and the whole country just stops what they're doing. Just stops. Wow. Car, you can watch videos of it of just like highways. All the cars uh-huh. stop, everyone gets out of their car. Um, yeah. Uh, it's a pretty it's a pretty uh, I just want to say it's a powerful experience to have an entire country stop what they're doing for like, you know, for a certain amount of time. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, and, and Yoma Show is based off of the um, Warsaw Ghetto up, Uprising. So it's fascinating, right, that, like, sort of the UN decided a date of sort of Jewish liberation and Israel decided a date on sort of Jews fighting back, right? That's sort of the difference between those two. Um, but I, you know, I observe both, um, and most yeah. Jews observe both um, as, that I know as well. Uh, okay. and, and, and I think in Israel they just observe the Yoma Shoah. Now, when you say observe, is that something that you do individually, or is it something that's done throughout your family, or your, uh, or yeah, throughout? Yeah, different. Different communities do different things. Uh, you know, because we're kind of shut down here because of Omicron, we're not really doing a lot this year. But some years we have kind of like a special service, or during services uh, during the Friday service before or after. I might mention it, or I do, as you do mention it, um, and we talk a little bit about mm-hmm. that too as a reminder. Uh, so yeah, I, yeah, we don't have like a, an intense sort of like a ritualistic experience around it at, at our community but some communities do some communities develop a real a, a, like a real sort of service for it um it just okay. depends but yeah i yeah, yeah usually what i do is, is i let like a, a yard site candle which is a kind of like a kind of yard site means the like anniversary of a death uh and okay. that's, that, that's actually yeah it's um yiddish and uh it the candle once you light it it goes for exactly 24 hours um, and that's you, you, you light that candle when it's anniversary of the death of a loved one. And I usually, I just, I, I light it in honor of all the, of all the people who don't have a, a loved one to light a yard site candle for them during the Holocaust. So okay. who passed away. So that's kind of, kind of like my, it's like my personal process of, of working through it. So that's kind of what I do. Hmm. Man, oh man. Yeah, and so you know, just to, and and then just to keep in the theme, you know, between our last conversation and now, we have the events that occurred in Coleyville, Texas, um, and so right. I mean, one of the one of the purposes, I won't say the whole purpose, but one of the purposes of having a Holocaust Remembrance Day is to to say never again, and to make sure that that we work against any form of anti semitism, and yet it's still popping up. Yeah, so Everywhere. if you're not exactly sure what we're talking about, I mean, uh, it's essentially in Coleyville, Texas, there's a congregation there called uh, Temple Beth Israel. And uh, essentially on a Saturday morning when Jews pray, uh, a gunman came in and uh, and held the community hostage for, I think, 11 to 12 hours. Uh, mm. Everyone came out safe. Uh, Rabbi Charlie Citron Walker, he ended up throwing a chair at the gunman, uh, which allowed them to escape. So in my mind, that guy's an American hero. Uh, and and so everything turned out okay. Like, you know, the government ended up being, being killed in the temple. So like, even though everyone, everyone was ended up being alive, (laughs) I I don't think that like everyone ended up being like, okay, like being okay. I mean, there's a lot of like, there's a lot of trauma that communities are dealing with now. Yeah. We won't Um, know for a long time what the actual impact was on the hostages for sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And like, you know, if I had anyone die in my temple with, you know, being shot at, even if it was someone, even of a gunman, that's still a kind of, yeah. that's very devastating to think about, think about that right. happening. Yeah. You know, I think uh, witnessing that in any location would be a trauma, but then you have the added impact of it that it's in 
what should be a safe space and yeah. a holy space. And, yeah. A sacred space and this this level of violence that occurs there. And, and you know what? Yeah. Like this is like this is our worst fears realized, uh, Matt. I mean, like we us Jewish communities, we do a lot, a lot of work when it comes to our security. Like for example, I've never given a sermon at my temple without the doors being locked. In fact, wow. sometimes I'm giving my sermon, someone's trying to get in and, you know, just, you know, a, con- a community member trying to get in and uh, we have to like open the door for them. I have to like kind of like stop my sermon. Like, hey, someone's in there at the door, you know? Um, so that's, you know, this thing, like our doors are never wide open and welcoming to anyone who enters. We literally have to open our doors for everyone. I mean, that's the kind of like security measures that we put in place. And that's almost every synagogue has something similar like that or even more intensive than that. I mean, I've been to many synagogues where there's armed guards uh, right yeah. there, right at the entrance. I've gone through metal detectors before at synagogues. Um, you know, synagogues often will have barriers so that cars can't slam through um, the oh, building. Wow. You know, so, there, and there, yeah, there's a lot of security measures that synagogues take um, in order to stay safe. And that's, that's unfortunate. It's unfortunate, Matt, because, yeah. you know, every time we're thinking about security, we're not thinking about Jewish community. And, right. and yet security is for Jewish community, of course. So it's, we need it. It's important. It's valuable. But I feel like the, this, this, this sort of this value of being secure and this value of being welcoming collide when it comes to our synagogues and, and staying safe. Yeah. 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 And that's, that's only fair. I mean, it's not like I think of, uh, you know, all the cities in, in scripture also, they all had walls around them because any, any given human community has a certain extent of keeping dangerous elements out. I mean, yeah. as, as much as we would love to say we throw our doors open and welcome, it's just not practical in the world we live in. Which, which I hate. I wish it yeah. was. I, I, I mean, every day I, I wish that, like, our doors were wide open. Anyone come in right. without fear. But, but you have the responsibility to provide a space that is safe. I do. We do. I mean, yeah. metal, and, you have and we have, and, right. And we have an obligation to make sure that my congregants feel safe. That's super, that's, a, yeah. that's a super important. And because of the obligation, you know, we mm-hmm. sacrifice being welcoming and, uh, and yeah. like, I'm not, I, I'm, I'm sad about it. I don't regret it. I'm sad about it. Uh, but, uh, but it's just, it's just the way the world works right now. You're right. Okay. So yeah. Another thing is really, it's really like harmful too, is that, you know, whenever these big sort of like newsworthy anti-Semitic uh, events occur, right? All of us Jewish parents are now having to explain to our children, like, what's going on and why why people want to harm us. You know, even my five-year-old was picking up on this. Like, you know, my wife and I were, were like, kind of, like, watching the, the, the hostage situation as it was happening. We're sad. We're saying a lot of things. And my son, like, figured it out. And, he, and he's five. Yeah. And he's like, what's happening? Like, why are you guys, like, so... Like, why are you guys so sad about this? I don't get it. And we're just like, the only way we can we can explain it is like, well, people have hate in their hearts sometimes and they want to harm us for it. And that's it, you know? And so asking mm-hmm. like my child to be brave, to be Jewish, like breaks my heart. Um, but that's, yeah. that's sometimes the world that we live in. Because you want to inform your kids as to an actual danger in the world, but you want to make sure that doesn't get internalized 
to say yeah. that there's something wrong. Yeah, and, and like uh, my kids younger, as they get older, it gets more complicated for, for Jewish parents, for sure. Um, because they're, I, I mean, you know, for, for teenagers, for example, they experience resentment. They, you know, not towards like being Jewish, but just towards the hate towards Judaism, right? And uh, and they have to like navigate a world where, you know, they're a part of a community that, that wants to be, that people want to harm sometimes. Um, and yeah. like, you know, I don't think it's all bad teaching our kids to be brave, right? I think, I think a sense yeah. of courage, understanding what courage, what being brave is, I think being brave can be a skill, right? That we learn how to accomplish and us Jews have to teach it to our kids at an early stage. So that's not necessarily all bad, but the reasons to do it just sucks. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, I'm really sorry. That's awful. Yeah. Yeah. And it does, it, it does. It like hurts. Like, you know, man, I mean, I can't even imagine what Temple Beth Israel is going through, you know, even post this, even everyone being alive and post all this. Like, I imagine still, they're probably still reeling from this experience. But it also, it hurts all of us. It hurts our entire, you know, our entire nation of Jews. We're just, we're, feel horrible about these, about these incidences. And so, and they keep occurring. I mean, they occur, they occur locally, as you and I have talked about in past, in this, in this podcast, and probably we'll talk about as well <laughs> some more. Yeah. Um, but when yeah. they occur nationally, it's just brutal. For sure. You know, you talked about local things and uh, in different levels of it. Obviously, the incident in Texas was amongst the more horrific that, that get out there. There's a more subtle one that happened that you and I were chatting about before about the books in libraries being removed in certain spots and yeah. one particular that you brought up. Yeah, so there's a there's a, a book called uh, called Mouse. It's spelled M A U S. It's actually it's the first it's one of the first Holocaust books I read, and also one of the first graphic novels I read. It's a it's a graphic novel, and it depicts yeah. the Jewish people as mice, and and it depicts uh, Nazis as uh, as cats. And it was one of the first graphic novels that I read, and it was oh my gosh, so this is like, both of us is our first graphic novel. Wow. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's this is a, impactful on me. I thought it was brilliant, but sad as could be, of course. Yeah. And so it, essentially, essentially, it's about a son whose whose father went through Auschwitz, and uh, and and his son is sort of explaining his or hearing, like explaining his father's experience as as being in a concentration camp, um, but all with mice instead. Of, instead, of, and um, so yeah. So essentially, it looks like in Tennessee, they uh, they banned it, and they. And they banned it because they, uh, well, I forget kind of like exactly what it was, but I guess they felt disturbed by there was a nakedness in the book, which, which. <laughs> really? That's, that was their problem with the Holocaust I mean, was like, that sometimes people weren't clothed properly? But they weren't people. They were mice, right? <laughs> right. Like, they isn't like, so like, so like, isn't like Donald oh. Duck also naked? Like, right. I mean. Like, he wears a shirt and a hat, but no pants. So you, you know, you pick and choose. <laughs> okay. And they were disturbed by, by the language they said, like, you know, there's like curse words in there. And like, and the, and the reason why this was so upsetting to me was that like, they should have been disturbed by the, de- the depiction of 6 million people being murdered. Exactly. Right. That should disturb them. Right. That's what should have been In general, like uh, you'll watch this movie where an asteroid hits earth and billions of people die, but then there's a sex scene and they say, Oh, you can't show kids. It's like, right. What? Right. 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 Yeah, yeah, so and, the school yeah. board, uh, I guess, uh, unanimously, I, I, I don't know. I think it was like 10 to 0. They voted to take it away from their 8th grade class. So 8th graders are no longer in Tennessee going to read this book, Mouse, that is amazing. And wow. Oh, by the way, it's by Art Spiegelman. 
Yeah, yeah, that's right. And yeah. he, I think he won the he won the Pulitzer the for he won the Pulitzer, right? Yeah. So yeah. wait, do you say Pulitzer? I say Pulitzer. Which one of us is right? Probably you. I'm horrible pronouncing things. Pulitzer. We'll put it on the third on the third syllable. The the Pulitzer. Yeah. <laughs> I, oh my gosh. Well, hold on. Funny side story. I remember uh, first first day of rabbi school, I'm in Hebrew grammar, and uh, my Hebrew grammar teacher goes, is your name Abram or Abraham? Right? Because in the, um, in, in the Torah, the emphasis is actually for names on the first vowel and not the second. And uh, I was, at the time, I was like, what am I doing here? Like, am I, am I really going to be a rabbi? And so my reply was like, I don't even know. You tell me whatever you think you should call me. <laughs> We're here in school. Teach. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, sorry. So that was a side side thing. But yeah. yeah. Um, so so I'm pretty upset by this by Mouse not being in this eighth grade class, eighth grade classes in Tennessee. And I think that's I think I'm ridiculous. upset about that too. And not just from a religious point of view, but from an artistic point of view. I mean, to to be censoring art for nudity really gets rid of most of the Renaissance as well. And yeah. Yeah. And are we going to really say that eighth graders don't have a concept of nudity? I mean, every single one of them on their phones can see literally all the nudity immediately. Um, and so all, all we're doing is taking away the, the, the curated stories that have merit to them. But, yeah. still, but still they have infinite access. So why would we take away the ones that present it in a way that's thoughtful and meaningful? It, uh, it drives me up a wall, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously me too. Though on, on the flip side, these kind of things tend to backfire too, right? Because like, you know, right now you and I are talking about it, you know? Like like this book well, that which book kind of like renewed, uh, renewed sales, especially in Tennessee. I would hope so. But I mean, then why are we still having this conversation like 20 years down the road from when this was released um, or longer? I, I mean, I think like, I mean, like, I think like it's, you can talk about, I mean, think about like systemic racism, right? You know, yeah. um, during, during MLK Jr. where I was reading sort of some of MLK speeches and I was like, oh my gosh, it's still so relevant today. It's still so relevant today. Um, yeah. and that was really like frustrating for me to realize that like, it's been a while since, 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 you know, his speeches. Um, yeah. and, uh, we're still, our country is still working on this stuff, still trying to figure it out. It seems like. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, mm-hmm. I just, it's, I feel like it's just not cool that we have, we haven't gone as far as I hope we would have. Like, think how much more we could get done if we didn't have to continuously go back and fight these old battles of, you know, book bannings and the like. I mean, and I know the library can't have every book, but for goodness sake, why, I mean, why would you draw a line at a naked cartoon rat? Yeah. Or, yeah. or mouse or duck for that matter. Yeah, it, it doesn't make any sense. Um. Now, listen, here's a hard-hitting topic based on what I just said. Yeah. Brace yourself. Okay, I'm braced. My wife Elizabeth and I have an ongoing disagreement. I say that our dogs are naked. She says they are not. Oh, boy. Not counting the collar. Wait. We can bring religion into this conversation. Are they naked like Adam and Eve, right? Like uh, Before Adam and Eve ate from the fruit of knowledge, were they naked? Even though they weren't wearing clothes, they were. They just didn't like recognize that yet. Apparently, from from how I read it. But according to Elizabeth, the dog's fur counts as non nakedness. 
<laughs> How did we get to this comment? Oh, it's because of I know how guys comments. <laughs> yeah, it's, I guess it comes down to is Donald Duck not wearing pants? Is that a form of nakedness? He's got feathers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. We'll have to we'll have to save this for a future conversation. I think this needs to have its own dedicated hour. Uh, <laughs> yikes. Yeah, I feel sorry for those listening to that conversation. <laughs> are animals naked? I think they are. I do. All right, we'll get back to that, but um back to more serious things and talking about how on a day of remembrance we're part of the uh, part of the hope is that it will keep awareness up enough that, that such horrors won't be inflicted again. We do have a local representative here in the state of Alaska who has been called out for a number of things, one of which being a photo of himself online in front of a quote by Hitler, and he's standing at attention, like as if honoring the So you're talking about, uh, is this David Eastman? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. He's a, I think he's the an Eagle River offender. Yeah. So he has that photo. Uh, he quoted, he, he shared a link to a quote from Hitler, which came from a website that was overtly anti-Semitic. Like, it was, uh, like yeah, it was, it was a Holocaust denying website. And, and yeah, and it's awful. It's, I mean, it's a terrible, terrible site that a sitting state representative linked to. And the current accusation is that he has an SS dagger in his office. And when asked about it, he declined to answer. Like um, in his office where he works? Is that what you're saying? Like The state like, office building. His like representative. Like you go office. to his office and, and there um, would be an SS dagger in it. That's the accusation. I do not have proof, of course, but the accusation is there. And when asked about it, he declined to provide an answer. Like, just for example, one sample answer he could have given is, hell no, which would be the only appropriate answer, right? Um, why he didn't have that answer right there on tap is is a troubling, troubling thing to consider. It's yeah. Troubling. I mean, this is, I mean, I mean, Matt, this is the problem, right? That like, you know, we assume that Nazis and what the Nazis believed in would be like stamped out forever when, when not only did they lose World War II, but we, we, we witnessed and experienced all the horrible atrocities they've committed. But yet uh, anti-Semitism and I would say the, what, what to even call it? Like taking, putting Hitler on a pedestal apparently still, still happens, yeah. still occurs. Uh, and to have local representation, leadership, believe in it is really, really difficult. It is. I don't quite understand how how you don't see yourself doing these things and recognize that you've you've gone wrong. Like how I mean, Nazis have have just become synonymous with everything evil about humanity, and yet people haven't picked up on that. I mean, you, you uh, and I we, we talked a little bit about like Christian Christian nationalism. Before yeah. we had a little conversation about that, and this is uh-huh. maybe this is like kind of like a vein of that. Like this is sort of like white, like white nationalism uh, is is a thing. It's a thing here in the U.S. and uh, we saw it grow quite a bit when when Trump was president. Yeah, and uh, and it's very problematic and it's very myopic in its values and the way that how it looks at the world. And Jews just aren't part. Jews are you know the other. And, and yeah. when it comes to nationalism, and, and also just think about like, and when any country uh, in the in history sort of had like this sort of nationalistic vein in their sort of in their in their worldview, Jews have always suffered from that, 
right? Yeah, Be- yeah for sure. Essentially because Jews being the other don't necessarily participate in nationalistic things. But it's just not mm-hmm. true here in the U.S., right? I celebrate Fourth of July like the next person. I love the holiday. Thanksgiving, love it, you know? So, you know, I believe that the, the beautiful thing about the United States is it's, it's been the kind of this grand experiment of, of having multiple identities, right? I identify myself as being Jewish and as being American, and I love being both things. But that's different. That's like very modern compared to what nationalism was historically, which is this is our way or the highway. And if you're not participating in sort of the things that we do, we consider you to be the other, um, and the other's easy to blame. Sure, yeah. And that's one of the main reasons people do it, I guess. If things start being more difficult, like in a pandemic, or if the economy is struggling, or it's hard to find work, or the supply chain issues are going on, I think that makes people pick sides more quickly and and start to say, well, our group is just going to take care of ourselves and the rest of you are slowing us down. And yeah. that, that, that sort of inward focus of, of just taking care of your own is, is something that it's, it's a process that's going to come up again and again into our future. I would love to see it end. But of course, that's so much of what gave rise to the Nazis in, in the 30s, right? When things were so devastated in, in Germany. And so that, that gave rise to people being willing to say, we'll take care of us at the expense of the others. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, and, and it's a great point, too, because, I mean, I mean, after World War I, Germany was not in a good place. Uh, and they were really struggling, and so it was. It was. It was. It was easy for them to, to blame to blame the, the Jewish people for, for for their problems. And like, and I just want to point out that like they killed a lot of Jews, and their problems didn't go away. So I don't. I don't understand why people don't seem to realize that component of it. Right? That like. That like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't. It didn't it, like. It didn't, it, it didn't yeah. work for them. It was. It was absolutely devastating and horrible and tra- traumatic for us Jews, of course. But like, they didn't. It didn't work for them either. They didn't. You know, they they believed in this in this lie, and yeah. uh, and they lost. But boy, you know, I I tremble to take that to, to say that statement because of two reasons. One, it might lend people to say, yeah, but. That's because they didn't do enough. Do enough, yeah. Right. They might say, well, they didn't get to try it all the way because the allies attacked back or, or you know, the, they think it's just the rough draft going on there. And and the other reason I, I would hesitate to, to ever put forth that reasoning is, well, let's imagine it had worked and Germany did all these horrors and it worked. It still wouldn't be right. It's not about the efficacy of it. It's about the ethical or morality. Yeah, uh, I think it's a great point. I mean, certainly, certainly, it's more about ethics and efficacy. You're you're totally right there. But I don't think it ever would have worked, right? Because essentially, the that that their policy called referred to as the final solution didn't align with reality. Right. Like nothing, yeah. nothing that that policy had nothing to do with reality. And because they weren't aligned with reality, it was I don't think it was ever going to work. Right. Like, uh, yeah, but but it kind of draws a connection with me to slavery in that slavery has existed in many forms in sure. many cultures around the world and throughout history. And from a an economic standpoint, it works. Right. It does put more money into the pockets of the people on top. So for the people who are utilizing this evil system, it functions exactly the way they want it to. And it's, it's just and it, not. It's, I mean, OK. I mean, like, yeah. I mean, I yeah. You're totally. First of all, you're totally right. I'm not disagreeing with you, Matt. On, on Why this. do you support slavery? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm never going to disagree with you on that one, Matt. You're right. Yeah. Absolutely right. I think one thing I think think about too, though, is that how effective is it long term, 
because things yeah. things that are good idea for a while, you know, things that get you richer for a while may not be a good like long term policy. Um, yeah, yeah, and I. I, I think that that slavery is horrible and should never occur. Uh, and some would argue that even now, with minimum wage like seven twenty five, that you, we have a, like a weird form of like like wage slavery, right. if you will, and and utilizing all of the luxuries and products from overseas slavery. Right, uh, right, heard, right, well, exactly. Those are could be like modern examples of it. I just yeah. don't think it's sustainable. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I, um, I think that I think that slavery uh, is not sustainable over time, but it does for those who had slaves. They were making more money, uh, unfortunately. Yeah. So yeah, the ac- efficacy of it, I think we is. I, I agree with your point with Nazis for sure. It simply doesn't work. But uh, the more important thing is if it, it was, did, you know, it, let's bring it back to Battlestar Galactica yes. where. Where they said humanity survived, but did we ne- we never stopped and asked ourselves if we deserved to, because they were utilizing the the Cylons sort of as slaves, right? And I think yeah. that was an interesting way to look at it. Like, yeah, we're gonna survive as a race, but we have to make as a human race, but we have to make sure that that's a good thing. And if Nazism had prevailed and functioned properly, okay, well. There you have your society of of evil. Is is that worth humans even self perpetuating? Then, if that's what that's we become, that's the world we live in. Especially yeah. since, like you know, Nazis believe that in the, in the Aryan race, right? They essentially, if you're if you're white, you're ten, you're you're better. Yeah, which is which is the white nationalism we experience here in the U.S. I guess the the whole thing is like um, the analogy of the garbage man, where. Every day they're out there collecting the trash that people put out on the curb and it might feel like a, an eternal task that you never are done doing it. And every single day it's like pushing that rock up the hill again. But if we don't have that function, then the garbage builds up and we never, ever uh, have health, public health. I, or I, any I sort of upkeep. Fun. Upkeep and I think, and yeah. I think that's the same with Nazis. You know, it's it's yeah. every single day we just got to clean up our own little area of the neighborhood and make sure that that doesn't grow. Jews are there's actually I forget who writes this. Someone wrote that. Oh man, I'm losing some rabbit points here, Matt. But this idea that that Jews are the canary of a civilization or or a society, right? That you did like mentioned that before. Yeah, yeah. mentioned that before. Yeah, I just can't remember the author who wrote that. But but like who you can you can judge. A, a society about how they treat the Jewish people there. You know what I mean. And uh, and if the, if the Jewish people are not being treated very well, that society is, is sick, quote unquote. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and so we're often. So I don't know if I like the idea of being a canary in a mine. You know, I don't know. I don't know. If I'm cool with that. Well, I wouldn't like, think so. <laughs> Those so canaries like, did not apply for that job. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? We didn't choose that. We're not choosing that job. Um, yeah. But I do think that, like, one thing it does is that, like, Judaism has a role in civilization. You know, for I think the never forget is really is really important. Like, I don't want to like like continue what I call generational trauma to like my kids or their kids in terms of like what we suffered in the Holocaust. But to but to remind people that like this happened and it's our job to be to be vigilant that we right. don't do this again. Uh, uh-huh. I think it is is important. Like I don't necessarily, I wouldn't call us a canary, but I would say that, like yes, we need to upkeep. Like we need to be vocal when we see these, these things happen. Um, you know, we had a whole we had a whole episode on on, on counter speech, Matt, where that's exactly what we talked about. You know, how to what to do, how to be vocal um, when when you hear hate speech. Uh, so yep. it just it's part of it. And like you know, 
one of the things that I love about our country is the First Amendment, you know, because it's the freedom of religion. Is part is a component of it, but it's also it also makes things complicated. Like I don't think we should censor people, but you know, uh, I also think that like it's the conversations should, should be cordial um, that we have. And, well, uh, and when you get to freedom of speech, then brings us back to you know, does this representative have a dagger in his office? It's not words, but it's a type of expression to have that thing, and you know, and sharing that quote online and posing in front of the picture. There's these aren't things that the law is going to touch, right? There's right. nothing illegal right. about doing about it. it. Yeah. And they, and so frequently I find that people who do this kind of thing do it in such a way that they have just the smallest hint of plausible deniability where they can say, Oh, I was just trying to share this for historical context, you know, or, or this is just, you know, an antique item that I, that I found for sale in a history website or whatever. And that, you know, there's always some way they can gently fudge around it. And it's obviously BS, right? You can't prove it in a court of law, but any human being recognizes that it completely is bull. And, and then that, what that does is opens up the door for all the online, you know, knuckleheads to be like, oh, see there, he didn't mean it. It's not anti-Semitism. There's no problem. Racism isn't a real problem in America. We're okay. And so there's a strange, I feel self-inflicted myopia where people are purposely blurring their vision to say that that doesn't count as anti-Semitism, that doesn't count as misogyny, that doesn't count as homophobia, that doesn't count as racism. As racism. So, yeah. Right. And so each each individual part they blur out and say that's not there. They erase it just a little bit so that the whole overarching picture they can say not racism doesn't count. Not anti-Semitism doesn't count. We're fine. But why, and but, but, but why go through that those gymnastics? Like why Good why question. go why work so hard to blur those boundaries? Like why not just not not have a dagger, yeah. an SS dagger in your office? You know what I mean? Like the work yeah. required to blur the boundaries seems like a lot of effort. I would think so. And I think internally there's a lot more going on with that guy uh, than with <laughs> the common people that are out there trying to blur the lines, in my opinion, as a method of the the self-preservation of their own inherited mythos, right? They're, they've been taught that they're one of the good guys. They've been taught that we as a nation are the good guys and we're okay. And if you start looking at things like critical race theory and saying, wait a minute, we, we have been the good guys a lot of the ways in a lot of the points in time. We've also been the bad guys in so many ways at a lot of points in time. Um, that's a tough hurdle to get over if you spent your whole life being taught only Rah, rah, go America. And hooray for the Christian church. And look, America and the Christian church, we're best buddies and nothing can ever stop us because we're great. Yeah, um, I mean, that, that reminds me, I didn't learn a thing about Japanese internment camps throughout my entire, entire school. Uh, right. Nothing, nothing. And so uh -huh. when I learned about it later, like I think maybe in college, I was flabbergasted. I was like, we did this? Um, yeah. And uh, I remember I in high school history class, they touched on it like with one sentence or something. And I remember even then myself and some of my friends being like, that feels like it's important. What, what was that? <laughs> you know, but it just got brushed on past. But, I, yeah. but that's, but there, but here's like where I, where I think as clergy, Matt, we, we need to help people improve. Right. Because like, I'm not like, I only get better if people offer me honest feedback. Right. Yeah. You know, like yeah. I only improve when people can say, Hey, you know, you made a mistake there or you did that thing wrong. 
Um, yep. And so, like, I feel like if we whitewash our history, it, it, you know, we then we can't really improve as a country. Like, I, we have to be more like. Um, we have to be comfortable with with criticism, and like I think the other the other side of it too is like we can't yell criticism at each other either. Like we can't yell or, or be angry, but like you know if we can if we can honor like I know that people offer me criticism because they love what I'm doing and they want to see me better at it. You know what I mean? Like it's a like you offer feedback no, from people love. I disagree with you there. Oh yeah, okay, we're disagreeing. I would say I can't yell criticism. Right. But you can. If something happens that's anti-Semitic, oh. I shouldn't. I should speak to it and try to be, you know, firm and and accurate. But for a person within the group that has been attacked, I think it can be very appropriate to yell. If someone is crying, I'm not going to say, "Hey, hey, quit getting tears all over everything and be logical." <laughs> you know? No, yeah. I'm, no, that's not what I mean. But I, I see your point, right? We, we got yeah. like, yeah. I mean, you, 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 sometimes you got to stay in your lane on certain things. I get that for yeah. sure. I was actually thinking of the Japanese internment camp, to be honest. Like, like I feel like you know the fact that 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 the history of that was not was not covered in my history books when I throughout my education was was a missed opportunity for for me to learn more about what not to do. You know, what our country should be yeah, doing. Yeah from that lesson Uh for sure but i also think that like it's easy like you know especially now right now rhetoric is so intense and so and so loud and Mm -hmm. often obnoxious and that's not that's not helpful in getting necessarily like what we what what you want it's not persuasive agreed Um, yeah the obnoxious part yeah just makes us go into our own separate corners and yeah it's just it's just anger producing you know Uh and uh and, you know, I'm kind of hashing back to when those yellow stars of David popped up in the assembly meeting. Like, you know, if I just if I just yelled at everyone, I don't think it would have gotten those stars to go away. It wasn't yelling wasn't the answer. Yeah, um, yeah it, it, right. it was consensus building. It was it was rapport building. It was expressing why it, it was harmful and hurtful in a way that was persuasive. And so I think that like I think the rhetoric is the, the, the how the how you say these things is as valuable as what as what you say. <laughs> Agreed. Okay. <laughs> that, that puts a bow on it there, man. Okay. All right. I, I, yeah. I think maybe we'll end it there, huh? <laughs> I think so. That works for me. It's a, it's a strange time of history and a strange day to be talking about Holocaust Remembrance Day when we have examples of such horror going on around us. And at the same time, I feel like there is hope. And things are getting better in so yeah. many ways. Um, I, I feel like for the last two and a half years of COVID, I've been saying we're almost there. We're almost there. <laughs> and here we are still waiting. But, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll keep on remembering and keep on hoping. Yeah, we'll stay vigilant. Uh, and so if you want to see us in action, Matt, how can we see you in action? I do a high dive show down at the pool at Diamond. High dive show. What's a high, like you, you literally just dive from a high oh from like a diving board oh my gosh yeah. you like man how many flips do you get in a hundred <laughs> I'm really good but if that doesn't work for your schedule then you can meet <laughs> me down at First Presbyterian Church of Anchorage Alaska we do a hybrid thing online and also in person in person is a small crowd at the moment it's just sort of self regulating which is kind of nice I haven't had to worry about you know capping the numbers and um but online you can find us just google first presbyterian church of anchorage alaska or go to our facebook page or our youtube page thanks uh and you can see me uh, uh on youtube at alaska judaism media 
Uh, that's where we do kind of all my services. Um, and you can come on our, our web page is uh, frozenchosen.org. Pretty cool one there. So uh, you anyways. Have you have yeah. a better uh, web page name than we do. <laughs> oh, well. Um, and uh, also thank you to James Brown for the logo and the Music Brothers for the music and sound design. Uh, and if you got this far, uh, thank you. We really appreciate you listening. Hi, Pennsylvania. <laughs>